The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. This is Toby Manhai with a special one-off bonus edition of Gone by Lunchtime. We will be returning to normal service with Ben and Annabelle in just a few days. Today, my guest is Sam Suchdeva. His day job is as National Affairs Editor at Newsroom. And he's just published a book all about the balancing act that is New Zealand's relationship with China. It's called The China Tightrope, Navigating New Zealand's Relationship with a World Superpower. It's a good pacey read, and it traverses all the issues in the sort of geopolitical and domestic uh, areas for New Zealand. That relationship will be in the foreground in the days to come as Chris Hipkins leads a trade delegation to China. Our editor, Madeline Chapman, We'll be there on the trip, uh, so keep an eye on the spin-off updates from China. It's the first trip by a New Zealand Prime Minister. I think it might even be the first trip by the leader of a Five Eyes nation uh, since 2019 when Jacinda Ardern visited. That was a truncated trip uh, as a result of coming uh, soon after the terrorist attacks in Christchurch. It does make it, though, a perfect time to talk with Sam about the bilateral relationship, about the tensions between China and the West and the Pacific, about the importance of uh, that relationship to New Zealand and to China too, about Chinese interests in New Zealand. And uh, I um, I challenge him to tell the future <laughs> and tell us all what's coming in the years ahead for the relationship. Here he is, Sam Suchdeva. Kia ora, Sam. Uh, we'll get into the crunchy stuff from your book, The China Tightrope, in a moment, but let's deal up the top with what's right in front of us, which is Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, and a quite a big, uh, quite high-powered trade delegation are winging their way to China. How how big a deal is this trip for New Zealand, and, and what, what would success look like for Hipkins and co.? Uh, look, it's a it's a pretty big deal. Um, you know, for one, you just do the math. It's been four years since we last had a prime minister go there. Yeah. That was just in the in twenty nineteen. But I think we all remember that trip was was heavily curtailed due to the um, terror attack in Christchurch. Mm. So there's only a couple of days on the ground. So we're actually going back to to John Key, and I think it was twenty sixteen, maybe when we last went. Twenty fifteen is the last major prolonged trip by a. A New Zealand leader. So it is a big deal. So much has changed in the last five years, right? Or the last 10 years. Mm. Um, in terms of success, it's kind of an interesting one. There's not a lot of tangible wins that I think 
Hipkins can expect to take away. You know, we signed an FTA upgrade not that long ago. Um, trade is, is the heavy emphasis, mainly because talking about anything else gets very touchy. Right. So it, it's going to be more that similarism, I think, of, of taking businesses over there and saying, look, we're here, we're happy to do trade with you, come come send your tourists here, send your international students. But it, it's more sort of vibes and photo ops, I think, than, than any sort of, yeah, we've signed this new shiny agreement. When you talk about trade being the focus, of course it is. And the challenge there, the head of NZTE, Peter Crisp, was quoted in Business Desk talking about how uh, he said a shift in consumer sentiment associated with the rise in nationalism and the rise of patriotism in that particular market presents a challenge for New Zealand exporters, for for, for New Zealand businesses. And that, that also, I guess, um, points us towards what you just described as touchy, which is that change in China over the last five, ten years under President Xi. Can you give us an overview of that, a helicopter view of how China is different, certainly from 2008 when that FDA was signed? Yeah, um, I think we've seen under under Xi, and in particular in a second term, so I think, was that 2016, 2017? Mm. 2017-2018, a much more sort of assertive foreign policy. There's this line that Deng Xiaoping said that is, is used to death, but it is because it um, was at for the time that we, you know, hide our strength and bide our time. Um, and, and so the idea was that, yes, China's going to be a power, but we'll, we'll hold back on the world stage and we'll just focus on ourselves, and that's, mm. that's gone now. Mm. So we've got a much more muscular, assertive, uh, you know, foreign policy approach from, from Xi Jinping, um, a sense that, you know, China has been a rule taker for so long. If you look at things like the UN and the World Trade Organization, other countries, Western countries, are telling China what to do. Now it's time for China to set the standards. So there's been that. Then there's wolf warrior diplomacy, which gets talked about a lot. Mm. And that's sort of a manifestation of that more assertive approach where you have diplomats sort of lecturing other countries about why they've offended China and how they hurt the feelings of 1.4 billion people and how dare you criticise us on human rights or economic coercion or anything. Um, so it, it, it's sort of a, a heightening of kind of the underlying currents that were already there, but it's, it's really stepped up a bit under Xi, and, and particularly now that he's got his second term and has consolidated power around him. And what about internally? I mean, in, in China, there's certainly for foreign media working there, but I think general, generally for those who are interested in civil liberties, there's been a tightening, hasn't there? And also, as far as the, the human rights situation is concerned, for example, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, there, th- things have not moved in the direction that some observers, international observers, might have liked. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's always been this hope that um, as China opened up or liberalised economically, that would flow through to its, its sort of societal settings and, you know, you'd have maybe slightly more de- de- democratic inclinations. And that mm. that hasn't been the case of anything. Um, you know, I think uh, Charles Adele, who I spoke to for the book, uh, had said that they've managed to sort of use technological advances and, and the sort of uh, the trappings of more wealth to pour into surveillance um, equipment. You know, if you look at the number of CCTV cameras they have around China, I think it's one of the most surveilled countries in the world, mm. if not the most. London might be here as a city. Um, so, so there's that. And you're, and you're right. I think that the space for debate, freedom of expression, what limited space there was, has, has shrunk even further for you know Chinese academics, Chinese students, 
um, any sort of human rights groups that are there, and they're, they're very minimal. It's, it's an incredibly controlled space and has been for some time, but it's it's getting even more restricted. So I think the freedom of, of those within the country to, to speak out about areas of concern is, is, is heavily curtailed. Chris Hipkins had uh, a curtain raiser act in the form of Anthony Blinken, <laughs> who was, of course, the Secretary of State for the US, and he's completed a trip to China and he had some very long meetings there and ended up getting a meeting with President Xi, which wasn't necessarily guaranteed at the outset. That was a postponed trip. I think it was postponed because of the balloons over over the American continent uh, saga. Spy balloon gate. Spy balloon gate. Uh, and... It seems to have been, and we're speaking sort of shortly after that trip has finished, seems to have been, uh, you know, a, a slight thawing in, in relations between the two countries. So that's not a bad time for Hipkins to be arriving, I suppose, you know, better than on the on the heels of, of, of say, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe Blinken and G were exchanging uh, beverage tips for Chris Hipkins. If you remember Anthony Blinken's ceremony, presented to be with a Oh my god! Oh, that's right. We're going to have to. We're going to have to suffer through Chinese sausage rolls, aren't we? Yeah, so, sausage rolls and Coke Zeros at the Great Hall of the People. It'll be quite a <laughs> quite a vibe. Um, no, it's look. I think it is a good sign, and it's probably a continuation of what we've seen over the last year or two, which is both the US and China saying, "Look, the underlying dynamics here aren't going to change. We are going to." We do disagree on a lot of things, but actually, we don't want we don't want it to go off the rails, and we don't mm. want to have some misunderstanding or accidental collision inside the South China Sea turn into a full blown conflict because we're not talking to each other. So it is helpful. Having having said that, uh, Blinken did go over hoping to uh, re-establish uh, military channels of communication, and the Chinese have said no to that so far. So that's mm. not ideal, but. I think it's good. I think you're right. It's good that you've got both sides at least willing to talk and say, look, we need to keep things at least stable, even if we're not going to suddenly become best of friends overnight. One of the things, or your book is about is about a tightrope, and, and we'll come to what that tightrope is in a moment, but there's also, when dealing with China, diplomacy as a whole, particularly with China, I, I think, there's also tripwires. And so one of the things that Hipkins has to be alert to, and I'm sure he will have been briefed and he'll be you know, who be cognizant of all of this, is the sorts of language that you don't use, particularly around Taiwan when you're when you're in China, right? And we, you know, we saw, you know, Biden, whether he whether he misspoke or meant to in recent times, sort of he veered away from that, what is it called, strategic ambiguity? Mm. What are the sort of things that, that that Hipkins will be looking out for when he's there and in, 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 in that area? Yeah, well, we also, New Zealand politicians seem to have a very bad habit, in, while they're in New Zealand rather than in China, of referring to Taiwan as a country. Mm. Normally when they group it in with a bunch of others, when we say, oh, you know, we've been talking to uh, Australia, Taiwan, Canada, and other countries, and then they have to correct themselves and go, actually, no, we're talking about economies. So it's that, that sort of strange language that's there. So it's it's avoiding anything around that, but it's also the flip side is not being sucked into saying anything that, that could be used as um, not not propaganda, but pushed to, to by the Chinese um, uh, state media and other you know Chinese uh, outlets to to sort of uh, promote the, the the Chinese line on things like AUKUS, like Five Eyes, mm. 
Um, they've been quite good, you know, the likes of the Global Times and the People's Daily at trying to drive a wedge between, for example, New Zealand and Australia. Mm. There were a series of stories a few years back when things were really at a low ebb and, you know, commentators saying, oh, why can't Australia be more like New Zealand and be more respectful of China and be more positive? So I think it's anything that feeds into that will be something for, for Hopkins to, to watch out for. Right, and that's one of the reasons, because we can, you know, obviously we're a pretty insignificant country <laughs> in in the world on the whole, you know, but that is one of the areas certainly that we're mm. important to China, aren't we? And we can see that through the state media is as a member of Five Eyes and as a country in the Pacific, it works to their advantage to be able to say, the, the 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 this lot are better behaved or or similar, right? Yeah, absolutely. We are probably the friendliest Western country, and I'd put Western in quite marked because it depends how you think about it. But mm. of the kind of traditional West, we're probably the, one of the friendliest countries towards towards China. So it's useful for them to say, look, oh, you know, we don't need to have this um, uh, competitive or or conflict driven relationship. Look at look at New Zealand and the fact that we've got this long history of of firsts. It was the four firsts for a long time. Now it's up to five or whatever. We yeah. yeah. First Western nation to sign an FTA with China, first Western nation to support them into the WTO, you, you, you know, all of this. But that's kind of, that's useful for them to be able to hold us up and say, look, you know, here's a small nation that's that's very different from us, and yet we signed all these agreements, and aren't, aren't they going so well? And on, on Five Eyes, there was some tension, and you touch on this in the book, uh, not too long ago when Five Eyes, which is a surveillance alliance, rather than a necessarily a geopolitical block. When Five Eyes countries started issuing statements uh, around Hong Kong, I think, particularly, um, and, uh, you know, the incursions on liberties in, in Hong Kong, how, tell, give it, give it, how did that play out in terms of our relationship with the Five Eyes versus our relationship with China? Yeah, I think it, it really kind of hit the headlines and. I'm just struggling to remember. I think it might have been 2020, or mm. in fact, it would have been. It was. I think it was the first speech or one of the first major speeches from the Naimahuta, where she gave a very considered address about the dragon and the tiny flower. I'm sure it was combed over by yeah. MFAT people. Had pretty much nothing of any note in it in terms of uh, sort of striking lines. But it was in the Q and A afterwards when she said, "Look, we're a bit uncomfortable with this. That the you know the purview of Five Eyes is expanding." It is an intelligence alliance, you know. We don't think we should be talking about these different issues. And then, then you had, um, I think, was it Alexander Downer, the former Australian foreign minister, saying, "Oh, it's always been four eyes," um, mm. and, and any sort of outrage, outrage sort of cries from the UK and Australia and everywhere else. And it's a bit overblown. And it does happen every few years. There's, this, there's these stories that were on the cusp of being kicked out of Five Eyes, and I just don't think that's realistic because we do bring something table even though as you say we're a small nation we've got unique connections into the pacific unique connections to the rest of the world and we're fairly trusted i guess um as a as an international player so that probably brings value to the americans and the british and, and so on so there's this kind of angst here in terms of mission creep from five eyes you know, should should it really be talking about you know foreign policy or defense or whatever else. And there's a kind of a weird way that we finessed it where we say, yes, we're still going to do things, but we just might want to call it five eyes. It's five countries. We have a five countries ministerial on immigration mm. or a five mm. countries meeting on on cyber uh, 
terrorism or, or whatever. So it's this kind of weird diplomatic solution to it. And then you chuck into that mix the more recent development of an actual military alliance in the form of AUKUS, which, of course, is Australia, the UK and the US, who are Five Eyes members too. We're not part of that. There wasn't a consideration for us being a part of that, at least not insofar as the what's the, the, the main pillar of it. There's been this talk around Pillar 2 of AUKUS. Can you give us a sketch on what that means and, importantly, how China might respond to us signing up to such an arrangement? Yeah, so so you're right. It's been split into two pillars. Pillar one is is, um, is the Australians getting their hands on nuclear powered submarines, and that's I mean, uh, one it's not really for any other country to join because it is very specifically about Australia. And two, it's just totally off limits for us. Andrew Little, mm. defence minister, who's been kind of positive about joining onto some parts of AUKUS, has said you know that's off limits. But pillar two is the one where there's there's greater possibilities for us. So that's kind of advanced technologies that they've bundled in together in terms of um, cyber warfare, quantum technology, hypersonic um, advances and, and so on, and, and artificial intelligence, which everyone's talking about at the moment. So it's saying, you know, there we're looking at how can we set standards in this area, how can we collaborate on research, um, and that, that's the bit where I think New Zealand is in, we're in, we're not even in discussions about joining, we're in discussions about having discussions about joining. So. <laughs> yeah, there was a bit of a, there was some slightly different messages that were coming from uh, Andrew Little and Anaya Hooter at one point, weren't there, in yeah. terms of the kind of, but 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 broadly that was about a, a sort of level of enthusiasm, it seemed it seemed like, rather than process. It's still, it's still yeah. there, isn't, there isn't an offer on the table, right? No, and there and won't be until after the election, at the very earliest, I would say, maybe for a new government, possibly longer, because it is, it's a really knotty issue, and it's, it's kind of interesting if you look at the reaction it's had in New Zealand. Some people I've talked to have compared it to um, the CPT, well, sorry, the TPP, as it was, when you had sort of like yeah. 10,000 people going down Queen Street in Auckland, or even before that, the Iraq war, when you had protests. And it hasn't got to that scale yet, but in terms of what it touches on, in terms of our nuclear-free identity, this kind of anti-American sentiment that we seem to still have in some parts of New Zealand, which really interests me, and that probably goes back to us being kicked out of ANZUS. Um, you've got the Pacific communities who are concerned about what that means for the Pacific if we have a you know militarization of the of the region, and we talk about um, a lot about Chinese militarization and um, you know concerns around the Solomon Islands Agreement and so on. But if you've got all of a sudden nuclear-powered submarines on our our doorstep in Australia. What what does that mean? So it's it's actually kind of got a, a an interesting constituency of different interests who are are really concerned about this, and I think that's why the government has sort of wrote it back. Yet Andrew Little being very enthusiastic, as you say, and, and Nanaia Mahuta not so much, but they kind of got on the same page now, which is to kick it into the long grass and and sort of talk about some of the bigger picture issues there. I mean, it's fair to say that there's a reasonable likelihood that behind closed doors it will be intimated, reinforced with Chris Hipkins while he's in China, that joining up with AUKUS would not be a sensible thing to do as far as advancing the, the friendly relations between China and New Zealand? Yes, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think they will want us to join at all. Having said that, if you look at Australia, mm. um, which as one of the founding members of AUKUS is getting these nuclear-powered submarines, 
um, they've been in that for a few years now. Actually, their relationship with China is, is improving. Right. And it's not perfect, but it kind of shows that actually being in the mix with these things is, is not necessarily, um, you know, doesn't spell doom or death to the idea of a strong trade relationship or a relationship in other areas. So it's kind of interesting to look at what's happened. Yeah, yeah. Over there, you have their trade minister going. I think Albanese is probably going later this year. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You can you can disagree in quite fundamental ways without necessarily jeopardizing the whole thing. Right, and in some ways we're vulnerable because you could argue that the sorts of commodities that we're exporting there are less essential to <laughs> to China's economy than those that that Australia is exporting. But similarly, there's an argument to be made that we're perhaps a little too timid. You know, it's possible to have a range of different views in bigger parliaments, for example. I mean, you talk in the book about Simon O'Connor and Lewis Wall, who's no longer in parliament, being these kind of, these voices who are a bit more uh, open and vocal in their criticisms of CCP and so on in in the UK and the US and in Australia. I think it's partly a function of having bigger parliaments and less kind of strict whipping systems, but there is more of that. Are we sometimes too timid? Australia hasn't necessarily suffered, and and it's been it's been it's been quite pugilistic in moments. But have we been too timid sometimes in uh, holding back from criticising China? I think I think we've probably got space to be a little more outspoken, and I think we have seen a, a slight change under under this government, where there's been a slightly more um, forward-leaning, shall we say, bullish, bullish approach. Mm. Um, we've probably still got scope to do a little bit more in this in this space. Um, there are risks, like you talked about the pugilistic approach in Australia, and and what we saw under I think Scott Morrison, uh, Peter Duff, and some of the language that they used there, and the you know the full-blown sort of trade war. We had Australian beef, barley, wine having tariffs of like up to two hundred percent, so tripling the cost of yeah. of exports to China. That, there there are downsides, so it's it's a careful line to walk. I guess the thing is, if we get to the point where we don't say, we just don't talk about sensitive issues where we have strong disagreements because, oh, it could hurt our, our exporters, and you kind of say, what's the point? We have national interests, national values mm. that we should be willing to articulate, and we should do those with every country, you know, the US, Australia, whoever else. So it's I think we're kind of learning and moving slowly, but we could definitely ramp it up a little bit more without you know going too far. You talked about the Pacific, you talked about the Solomon Islands, and that what happened with the Solomons when uh, there, were, there was a leaked document describing uh, a military pact of sorts, uh, sort of access really for, for China and the Solomons, which of course is very close to, very close to Australia, um, geographically speaking. Um, that sort of set off a, a big swivel of the spotlight um, in New Zealand and other parts of the world to the kind of contest as, you know, in, in an old speak of the theatre of of the Pacific, uh, in terms of you know a tug of war. Really, it seemed as though I mean analysts pointed out that the West maybe had created a vacuum into which China that China China had exploited. That uh, that contest changes again New Zealand's relationship, doesn't it? Do Do you want to give us a kind of quick overview of that, if you could? Uh, of how that played out and what it means for that China-New Zealand relationship. Yeah, yeah. So we we have been in the process, I think, even before that Solomon's deal of, of changing the way we deal with the Pacific, and part of that is 
it's due to the concerns around Chinese influence. Under Winston Peters, we have this Pacific reset, which yep. was, you know, we need to be paternalistic, we're too sort of dictatorial, we need to work in partnership with them. But that's, like you say, it's gone into hyperdrive after the, the Solomon's agreement. And there was a sense that, um, you know, shit, what, what, what have we done wrong? What's happened that's left a gap here and had the, mm. the Solomon's um, looking to someone like China? And this was Jacinda Ardern's, was Jacinda Ardern's argument that, you know, we should have Pacific-led solutions. Uh, come to us first. Why haven't, haven't you talked to us? But, um, look, in terms of the wider implications, uh, I sort of I mentioned this earlier, but if you've got uh, military bases, and uh, not even military bases, even sort of dual-use facilities, and if you've got agreements where, yes, the Chinese Navy can, can dock in an airport and, and refuel or whatever, mm. to what extent does that sort of bring... The, the potential downsides of these sort of um, these tensions, like a, a harder military component to to our region. So there's that, and there's just the influence building from from China, which you know they're entitled to do to a degree. But what what does that mean for us and the sort of relationships we've had with the Pacific? We like to pride ourselves on you know having having a strong relationship, having large Pacific population in in New Zealand. But, you know, what, what happens when you've got China throwing large amounts of money around and they put a lot of money into infrastructure there? Mm. Some of it's been good, some of it's been, been not so good. So it's kind of knotty there. And, and then you've got um, also the sort of resource implications. Because I think that's why there's at least a reasonable degree of Chinese interest in the Pacific is fishing stocks, uh, I think timber to a degree, they export a bit from there. And, you know, the t- we want to help protect the Pacific, but also probably New Zealand has an interest in being able to have sustainable fisheries um, stocks in, in its neighbourhoods. So, yeah, there's a, there's a few different issues there, and it just puts a little more pressure on us. Just very briefly, the sidebar on Winston Peters that you mentioned, it's, it's, I really enjoyed hearing from him in your book. Uh, I think it's easy to forget when he's in full-on outside parliament opposition mode that he's actually quite a thoughtful... New Zealand's number one business school wants to help you unlock your potential. At the University of Auckland Business School, learn to innovate, research, and collaborate with business leaders to drive real change. Join the business school that's doing things differently and find your passion at the University of Auckland. Check out auckland.ac.nz forward slash business to find the study option for you. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Foreign minister, diplomat, you know, down to the little things he says, like, you you know, he always made sure that he wouldn't condescend to the Pacific Islands, and he arrives wearing a suit because rather than some, you know, colourful shirt. But it was – he. I, I, did, did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy those conversations with him? I did. I did. And I wish I wish we saw more of it. Um, uh, yeah, when he's, when he's not in a ministerial portfolio, I had a recent argument with him on Twitter about his, his nonsense around the WHO. And it's like a different guy, isn't it? It's like a different person. It, it is, yeah. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde or whatever cliche you want to use, but it's like, how can you reconcile the person who says that sort of stuff 
with someone who is a, a, is a statesman and can be very um, sort of disciplined and eloquent when it comes to this. So, yeah, no, I, do, I did enjoy it. And for all the grief he rightly gets, and I think he deserves a lot of criticism, mm. he's actually represented New Zealand very well in the, the times when he has been foreign minister. It's just the kind of noise and nonsense around the edges that kind of um, clouds that. How did you go on? How did you get on getting people to speak to you for this book? Jacinda Ardern turned you down. Um, but you've got quite a few. John Key is there and articulating his position. Generally, you know, you don't get much more dovish than John Key in terms of uh, China. How, how did you find it generally in terms of were people forthcoming? Uh, people, you know, analysts, uh, politicians, who? Yeah, it was. It, it is tricky, um, and across the board, I would say I had difficulty. I mean, academics are the, the easiest ones, and some of them are quite in there. But I think they have good things to say. Politicians, yes. certainly, current politicians was harder. I had you know, senior ministers who I talked to and would say, you know, yeah, look, um, I can talk to you um, anonymously, not on the record, but it indicated interest. And then I sort of followed up and said, oh, what about this date and that date? Or, hey, what's going on? It just kind of fell into a hole. Um, Same with the business sector. You've got quite senior business people who were uh, very leery of saying anything just because of the risks, I think, to, you know, if if I say something wrong and it affects our industry and all of a sudden we can't get exports into China. So, there were difficulties there, and I think that's telling in itself of of how the relationship has changed. We've got people who are afraid of of, of talking, even anonymously in some cases. Mm. Um, but no, look, I think it was still. I think I've got a reasonable cross section. It's one of those things where if I'd had twice three times as long, could have done twice three times as many interviews, and it would have been great. But actually, to have the likes of, of John Key, who is yeah the the most dubs have done, and he he acknowledges that that he's an outlier when it comes to China among his, his sort of contemporaries in the West. Mm. Um, and then you've got former, some former diplomats, uh, current diplomats who I talk to, uh, members of the Chinese community in New Zealand who are the ones who are experiencing a lot of this uh, interference or influence concerns firsthand. Uh, it was it was good overall, but it is it was certainly um, interesting to see the people who kind of ran away from any, any um, suggestion that they might want to to talk about this. Right, well, you know, you did call it the tightrope, didn't you? And that's the reality of it for them too. You know, there are, there are inherent dangers yeah, in that. people just don't want to step out. <laughs> if you don't step out, you can't fall off. Come for a nice, you know, brisk walk on this tightrope with me, your friend Sam. <laughs> hey, um, a, a large part of the book is focused not 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 so much on the kind of the, the geopolitical dynamics, but New Zealand and the role of China in New Zealand. Um now there was that you refer to it that uh, headline uh, was it was it ABC no no it was um it was it was Channel Nine uh, sixty minutes the New Zealand which is a triumph yeah. triumph of punning um, but now hyperbole right New Zealand but is there is there some truth in it uh, some some probably a, a, a tiny segment and that like you know as an aside that was really a, a masterful piece of. Um, Certainly the promo, this is all real, I think, where you had, uh, you know, Michael Barnett seductively winking at the camera <laughs> and talking about being friends with Ben Fertz and it was there, just what are the Kiwis doing to us now? And uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite something. Um, but, we, I mean, we're just in a very different position to Australia. Um, uh, similar in terms of trade exposure, which is kind of interesting for all that they talk about this. They've they seen a similar proportion of their exports there. Mm. But, Australia much more closely linked to the US, still in AUKUS, sorry, not still in ANZUS, 
still have, well, they are still in AUKUS, have <laughs> got uh, American Marines, I think, stationed up in the Northern Territory, uh, and, and, and just more sorts, more inextricably linked with the United States. And I think we are a little bit more ambivalent in that regard, and we're probably more, well, we are more advanced than them, I think, in our relationship with China, and that possibly is what leads us to be a little bit more equivocal on some of these sort of things. So I think the idea that, that we were selling the Australians out is is um, is, is hyperbole, it's, it's very much so, but um, are we heading on different tracks uh, when it comes to China and when it comes to our place in the world? I'd say yes, and it's going to be harder for us to, to reconcile that. I mean, Australia had a big defence review that they um, released recently and um, – I think Rob Ayton from Vic Uni described it to me as prescribing missiles for breakfast, lunch, and tea. So <laughs> if you look at what they're doing, they're going to have nuclear-powered submarines. Mm. They have a lot of, of long-range missiles. Um, they're just heading in a totally different direction to us, and I don't think it's something we, we, we can't afford having to have missiles. I don't think we'd want to have missiles or anything like that. But, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting those divergent paths we're taking and what does that mean for the trans tasman relationship when we are – so close to each other geographically, but also culturally. So in the book, you survey a whole range of areas in which Chinese influence might be being felt across New Zealand, all the way from Parliament, where there's been speculation around the role of some MPs through donations, in the media, particularly the Chinese language media in New Zealand, and sort of general kind of cultural organisations and a whole range of areas, business through Huawei's involvement in, um, in in 5G. It's a really interesting area, isn't it? Because at once we need to be alert to it, but we don't want to be paranoid and we certainly don't want to feed xenophobia or racism, right? Like, for example, having a Chinese New Zealander in our parliament is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something I, that was very much on my mind while I was writing this and with the people I spoke to is that there is a risk if you talk about these things and you get too sort of vague in your language or, or prone to generalisation, mm. then you start to cast aspersions on all, all Chinese New Zealanders and then we don't want that. And we've had a, a bad history in that space. I mean, I have one chapter where I talk a little bit about the sort of the past relationship and some of the, the terrible things that we've done. Mm. There was the poll tax all the way back in the hundreds but more recently it was the 1990s i think we were talking about the asian invasion and oh what about all these asian people who are coming here and bringing bringing crime and tribes and whatever and it was it was nonsense it was um it was scaremongering but at the same time you talk to two people in the chinese community and i spoke to Seming Mok, for example mm -hmm. and some others who aren't quoted by name and they say look we want you know members of the chinese community need protection as well from from uh, any state interference you know they people come here because they want to be able to express their their views freely mm. and have have freedom of belief and, and so on so anything that impinges upon that is, is very concerning so yeah i think it's it's about being very uh, nuanced and careful with your language when you talk about this you don't just talk about oh china's doing this or oh, the chinese are doing that mm. it's the chinese state it's the chinese government right and, and so on, and it's and it's not yeah not getting caught up as well, and and saying that you know anyone who is in in parliament is is a, is a spy for a foreign nation. But I think in the cases of Jiang Yang and Ren well, clearly there were grounds for concern. I think from the people I spoke to and from the reporting we've seen in the past, including from Richard Harbin, 
politic who broke the story, you know, the intelligence agencies talked to to Labour and National, they, whatever they were told, it was enough for them to act. Mm, so mm. Um, we can't pretend that this is all, all racist or xenophobic either, either when there are grounds for concern. What's 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 next, Sam? Uh, do a bit of crystal ball gazing for us. What are the fault lines in the next five to ten years? Obviously, Taiwan is sitting there as a you know a, a, a big risk factor in in geopolitics for the entire world. Um, tell us everything that's going to happen. Predict the future, <laughs> and and finally, I guess the answer to the question that is posed by your book invited by your book is do we have to choose do we have to choose some people in your book think we do some think we don't so that's just a very straightforward easy question for you to answer the future of the world and whether we have to choose can we can we record like six different versions and then in 10 years time we research (laughs) which one is actually right of course um yeah look i I think taiwan this is this was a no-brainer it doesn't mean really take much extraordinary insight to say that that is going to be the big the big issue. I think China has said that we will be reunified mm. with Taiwan. We want to do it peacefully, but we'll do it by force if necessary. Mm. So I don't I don't necessarily buy the the analysis that we've seen from some in the American military and and I think some of the Australian media that, you know, we've got war around the corner within the next two, three years. I think wars are expensive in terms of Money, people that you, you risk losing, and, and disruption. So I don't, I don't know that that China would want that. It's it's really a last refuge. I think um, it's an act of desperation, like we've seen with Putin in Ukraine, mm. and, and I don't know that China's at that stage yet. Um, I think we're going to continue to see some angst or work around this issue of you know what's called decoupling. So. Uh, you know, American-led companies, technology companies, uh, refusing to use Chinese components and vice versa, and that's going to be very concerning for us, I think, if you've kind of got an American tech system and a Chinese tech mm-hmm. system and an American trade system and a Chinese trade system. That's really damaging for small countries like New Zealand who, who uh, you know, we, we don't have the resource to be putting money into two different types of of, of tech or, or whatever, sort of meeting different standards. So that's something to watch out for. Um, in terms of in terms of the, the tightrope, and do we have to pick a side? I I don't know that we do. It probably depends on on how you define that. I think if if worst came to worst and there was was a war, was a conflict, which nobody wants, mm. and least, most of all us, do we know which side we would be on? I would I would tend to say yes. I think Andrew Little said words to the, this effect recently when he talked to Audrey Young and the Herald, and he got a bit of. Um, uh, blowback for that, but it, it's kind of true. Like we are, in terms of the sort of interests and values, we are more closely aligned with the United States and with China. Does that mean we should want what to happen? Absolutely not. We should do everything we can to avoid mm. it. But it, it, you know, we're very the, clearly aligned with the West, right? Like we're very clearly aligned. It's it's, yeah, it's not it's yeah. not it's not it's not really yeah. ambiguous. No, and I don't think that should be controversial to say. It's, it, it's just it's self evident, really, but. Um, I think we can still sort of walk a line, and I think what we need to be clear on, and I, th- I think to the government's credit, they've, they've been pushing this line recently this year, and I agree with it, is that at having an independent foreign policy is not the same as having an isolationist foreign policy. It doesn't mean we kind of hide right. from the rest of the world and 
cower under the bedsheets no. and, and refuse to work with anyone. Nor does, or, it, nor does it mean having a neutral foreign policy, right? Independence no, and, and neutrality yeah. are separate things. Exactly, exactly. This idea that, you know, we can be the Switzerland of the South Pacific, if you leave, leave aside sort of what Switzerland has that makes that possible, yeah, it's, it, it, people tend to conflate those, those two or those three, if you say, you know, independence, neutrality, isolation. It, what it means is that we'll make decisions and we trust ourselves to make decisions in our own interests. And when those align with the US, we will work with them. When those align with China, we'll work with them. And when countries do something that threatens those interests, then we will we will say as much. Mm. So I think we can do it. It's it's going to take a, a bit more work and a little bit more coverage, and we probably need to um, you know, invest a bit more in, in, in some of their capabilities. And as an aside, I think it's not strictly relevant to the, the book, although I mentioned it towards the end, is we actually need to be building up our um, – our capability in terms of, I think, languages, programs, and 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 such through universities. So it's kind of concerning what we've been seeing at Vic and, and Otago, and it looks like a lang- languages courses are going to get a lot of the, right, um, right. you know, have a lot of the cuts. So we're kind of going backwards at a point when we probably need to be actually investing more. Um, but look, I think it's I think it's manageable. It's not going to be easy, and the underlying dynamics, those U.S.-China tensions. Uh, the pressure that we'll face from each side, those aren't going to go away, but I think we can kind of pick our way through it. Hey, last thing I wanted to touch on, Sam, before I let you go, and you're about to head off overseas for um, some work and some fun. Uh, You are an unusual breed now in your incarnation at Newsroom as a, I think you're called the National Affairs Editor, but covering covering security, defence, foreign affairs, all that sort of stuff. There's relatively few of you in New Zealand. If you go to the UK or the US or Australia, you'll have, you know, most major outlets will have a, someone who's in charge. You know, the papers in the UK, you'd have someone on security, someone on defence, and then a foreign editor with a whole desk of people who are overseeing correspondence, all of that. Is that, what's it like being a, I mean, there's, you're, not, you're not alone. There's Thomas Manchin, a few others who have sort of focus mm-hmm. in these areas. Do you think it's what's the case for having more of that in New Zealand? I mean, I mean, my view is that it would be good for us. You know, Christopher Luxon was calling us inward-looking the other day, and there's some truth in that, right? Like, would you like to see yeah. more people focused on that area? Do you feel a little bit lonely from time to time? Oh, I do, I do, absolutely. <laughs> I need more, need more friends, foreign <laughs> policy nerds around me. Um, but no, I, I think I think there is, and of course, you know, you could say maybe. I, of course, I'd say that, given I'm already working on it. But um, well, you could say you don't want any competition. You could say no more. I've got it covered. There is that. More <laughs> scoops for me, please. But actually, I think we are better served as a as, as a nation and um, as a media by having more journalists working in this area. It has improved since I joined Newsroom. I started in 2017 with a a foreign affairs focus as foreign affairs editor. And it was very lonely then. Now we've got, I think you mentioned Thomas Manchin's staff, uh, Audrey Young at The Herald, who does a bit more there now that she's not the political editor. But there's there's still a lot for us to be looking at and, and talking about. And the, the international environment is only going to get more complex. I don't think we're going to miraculously see a return to the golden post-war era, the you know, Fukuyama's end of history or whatever. So we need people who are able to to sort of pick this apart, both in terms of explaining to New Zealanders why they should care and what this means to them, but also taking a critical look at 
how our government approaches this, how our diplomats approach this, because they are not mm. infallible, and we we have made mistakes. So I think it's it's an it's an investment that's only going to reap rewards. But you know, can media outlets afford to do it? I don't know. You know, times are tough at the moment. Everyone's really uncertain about the economic environment. But I hope that once things do stabilise on that front, we have more outlets well uh, willing to put in the time and resource to to get journalists recovering our place in the world. Hey Sam, thanks for coming on this special edition of Gone by Lunchtime, rival podcast. Um, it's been fascinating and fun to talk to you. Uh, and good luck overseas. Thanks very much. Thanks, Toby. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety starting to emit from you. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spinoff. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spinoff member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.